You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GGTMC listeners, it's Rupert. Uh, for this week's interview, I got to talk to uh, my friend and fellow cinephile uh, actor Pat Healy. Um, Pat has had a uh, very intriguing uh, acting career, and he's been in a lot of cool movies, including uh, Magnolia, Ghost World, um, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, um, he was in a movie called The Great World of Sound, which is a, a really neat movie you should check out. Uh, he was in Rescue Dawn, Snow Angels, Undertow, um, tons of stuff, and, and lots of TV appearances. Um, Six Feet Under, uh, and I talked to him about how he wrote for um, In Treatment Season 2. Anyway, we had a long, uh, interesting conversation about you know his origins in uh acting and writing and uh, a lot of his favorite movies and stuff like that it's a really fun conversation and i got to see meet him in person and talk to him which was really neat too so i uh, hope you enjoy it um so can you talk about uh what inspired uh your short film you know actually can you tell people that haven't seen mullet what it's about i know that's kind of a standard question but uh yeah mullet is a, a short film that i made in uh, God, almost ten years ago now, it was it premiered at Sundance in 2001. It is, uh, in my words, a kind of a, a story of comic book uh, movie nerds um, who are also kind of into memorabilia and collectibles, and uh, the landlord, <clears throat> the uh, the landlord of, of the main character who I played uh, and his roommates um, have a piece of Barbara Streisand's wedding cake in their freezer. And so the most idiotic heist ever imagined is, is hatched and, uh, and you know, all hell breaks loose. And it's kind of a story of, about the life, that, at least that I was living at the time, uh, as filtered through... Um, kind of like a 70s cop show or 70s movie, <laughs> both visually and, and tonally, um, if you can dig that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, it, think, I think a lot of people... It, is, it, is it online right now? I remember it was. Uh, yeah, you can get it. If you go to the... I, I, I'm such a dunce when it comes to... I'm really... I have all this technology here, but I'm kind of a Luddite when it comes to certain things, blind spots. So I've never figured out how to get it on YouTube or anything like that. I'm sure it's, like, simple, but... The, the company, the production company that made it, Red Naval Filmworks, which is R-O-W-O-R-X, they have it up, and they also have another short that I made. I got some money from uh, from Fox Searchlight at the time. They were doing a program, and they gave young filmmakers some money and, to shoot stuff on video, and I somehow convinced them to give me a 35-millimeter Panavision package and all of the <laughs> film I could use back when we still did that kind of thing in indie film. What's the, wait, what's that one called? Cause I haven't seen that one's that. called Dog Napped. Ooh. So those are both on that site, and that one's like kind of like a live action. 
It's like a live-action uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon <laughs> that goes horribly wrong. Oh, yeah. Excellent. And that one's pretty uh, short and sweet. Um, I was going to ask you, how did how did you get Henry Gibson involved in uh, Mullet? Well, I had actually, at the time, two things. I was living uh, with two roommates, um, the actor Nick Offerman, who's on Parks and Recreation now, who's my friend from, from Chicago, and, and another guy. Uh, and uh, we had a landlord named Bucky, who, was, uh, who, who lived with his lover, Alan, and rented. They lived in the, um, we lived in a duplex that lived beneath us in Silver Lake. And, uh, and we had a neighbor who was a caterer who catered Barbara Streisand's wedding to, <laughs> to uh, James Brolin. And uh, and he came. He brought me in one day. It was a fairy. Like you can't tell anybody this. <laughs> and that was the where the idea was hatched. And you know, around that time, I'd done uh, the movie Magnolia. That's right. With Paul Thomas Anderson, and I met Henry Gibson. Uh, rest his soul. Passed away recently in September, but uh, at the. I think I had met him at maybe like the rap party or something just briefly, but he was not really aware of me. And then at the first screening, the cast and crew screening that we all went through out in North Hollywood, where I was kind of like I couldn't even like take that movie in the first time I saw it, it was just so huge. And, uh, he came up to me afterwards and was just very complimentary. And I'd been a fan of his obviously since I was a kid. I'd watched The Blues Brothers and Laughing and. And then, you know, as a, an adult in my 20s, I was getting into those Altman films and everything. And so so that was a huge thing. And um, it's kind of like a tight-knit family that Paul created. So everybody sort of had contact with each other. And um, the casting director, uh, Cassandra Kulukundis, and I had a good relationship because she had also cast me in Ghost World. And so I just asked her for his info and what, you know, does she think... It would be cool if I sent him the script. And uh, she said, yeah, and she would. She gave it to me, and I sent it to him. And, like, really, like, a couple days later, I got this really nice letter, which I still have somewhere, uh, about uh, the script and, and how much he liked it. And he just had some questions, and he had some uh, ideas, all of which were good and made the script better. Oh, wow. I mean, he, That's like, cool. he came up with, like, the the defining sort of ironic twist that really kind of made it a noir which I hadn't even thought of which is that you know how in the end it all falls apart <laughs> and I and I like in the end in my original script the, the, the bad guys got away with the thing but in this one it's you know they actually destroy it and it, nobody gets anything I hadn't and that was his idea wow. and, and uh, I I was channeling the Maltese Falcon, but I wasn't. I wasn't conscious of it because it was my brother who pointed it out later, after it was made and had shown on all these festivals and everything, that it very much had many aspects of that, which was like one of the first films I saw in a in a film study class in high school. And when we first started talking about film theater, even though I'd been into movies for many years, so it was in my head somehow. You know, it has the this fat sweating bad guy and the, the dingus that everybody's after and all that stuff so um and and you know and in that movie everybody just kind of gets you know fucked too you know yeah. do we say that on your podcast yeah absolutely we talk a mature language absolutely so uh I uh so he had that great idea and then he was just so he was really a wonderful guy you know he was just a 
really pleasant, nice, kind person, very sweet. And he brought all of his own costumes and props and things. And even the character of Bucky, I wrote him like our landlord, who I don't know if ever he ever saw it. I think if I were smarter, I wouldn't have used his name and all that stuff <laughs> like I did. But uh, I never meant any um, disrespect. I loved him, too, but he was a funny guy. But uh, Henry, the, the character had a mustache. The guy had a mustache and he had braces, which I never really, I never asked about or why. And so I'd written that in the script. Henry was in Utah filming a movie for the Disney Channel, which I think was called The Luck of the Irish or something. He was playing a leprechaun. <laughs> and while he was there, unbeknownst to me, he went to the hair and makeup people and had them make a mustache. And he went to a dentist and had him make up and it was not it was a difficult thing to do and the guy you know just did it for like an autographed picture or whatever and got these and showed up with all this stuff he was just really incredible wow and we stayed in touch for a long time and then I kind of lost track of him and I got back in touch with him again through Twitter amazingly of all things (laughs) wow I didn't know Um, I realized that he was tweeting and I followed him and uh and I got a call from him. He called me because I had the same number. Like right after that, it was like he had, you know, was reminded, and he and he said all of these um, really nice things, and that people still talk about the movie and how am I doing. And he's he'd been following my career, so he was following in the trades that I was writing still, and you know, just really happy and really proud. And uh, he died like three weeks later, oh, and it was really like uh, very. Uh, touching to me that somebody that I had known and, and respected and admired so much for many years that that was going on and that that's what he was thinking about and that's what he took the time to do yeah. uh, in the, like the last three weeks of his life uh, it's really kind of remarkable and sort of speaks to uh, the kind of guy that he was and I was very fortunate to have worked with him I have this album of uh, I, I have an original laugh-in like cast album <laughs> that he signed and wrote a little note to me on when we made the film. And it's actually in the film. You can, it, the production designer, Phil Flores, who's a director now as well, uh, you know, lined the walls of the apartment with all this junk, and one of the things in, in, behind Mike Shannon in one scene is a, is a, is a copy of uh, the, the Laughing album, oh, so it's cool. like in joke. That's really cool. Which I thought was all right, because... You know, Kubrick never did stuff like that, but he threw in a 2001 soundtrack in uh, Clockwork Orange on the record. That's right. Seems like if Kubrick can do it, <laughs> and I'm not even referring to myself. I'm just throwing an in joke in. So, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a really great experience. And uh, uh, you know, after that film, you know, did well the festivals and things. I just didn't really have um, my shit together, and I didn't know how to write a script. And I tried writing a feature based on that for a long time. And then uh, it didn't really happen, and then I, I sort of put it away. And the next thing I wrote, I wrote in like a couple of weeks. It was based on a, just a very rough idea uh, of uh, another director friend of mine, David Gordon Green. And uh, he said, you know, like I, I, somebody should make a Western on little those little horses called snow ponies. <laughs> and I ran with that idea. I thought it would be a joke, but it... it it turned into this really like very dramatic script, even though it's funny and strange. 
Um, and that uh, has what's launched my writing career, which has been going on for about four years now, and has really like been the main focus of, of my uh, endeavors the last few years, even though I continue to act, because I'm like you, a cinephile, and I I want to make movies. I don't care how I, what I do in them, you know. Uh, but acting was my thing that I did as a kid because it was what I knew how to do, and I enjoy it. I love it. You know, it's my first love, and and uh, so. But if I can write movies and direct movies and produce movies and continue to act, um, that's what I like to do because I really like that collaborative process of making things together with people I respect. I mean, I had old friends like Mike Shannon who was in Mallet with me, and new friends like my cinematographer Lou Weinert and Phil Flores the production designer is a director now and and we all just you know it really is a highlight and my brother's working with me and it's really a a highlight of my creative and my professional career because it just it it's so fun to make films you know to make movies and it's, I've always loved movies, and you know, since I was a little kid, and and that's you know really living the dream. You know, even though you may not be making the money as much doing that, it does lead to that eventually. It's eventually led to me, you know, sustaining myself, you know, really well in this business, which is difficult enough to say, but particularly in like in this economy now, it's like it's near impossible. So yeah. Well, I was gonna say for a cinephile like you, what's it like, and a guy who, who's a filmmaker and wants to continue to make films. What's it like to work with somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson? I mean, is that a very collaborative set? Is he somebody that's open to... Uh, is, his, is his process transparent in a way that you can pick things up? Yeah, it's um, it was a huge thrill. I was 26, 27 years old, and I'd been out here less than a year from Chicago, and I was a huge Boogie Nights fan. I mean, I, was, I did a list recently of movies that I saw more than three times in the theater, and that was definitely one that I just went and saw over and over again. There's not many movies like that. And so, I read. I remember reading about it in the trades when they announced that Tom Cruise was going to do the movie with him, and it was always really kept under wraps what the movie was. So I was really excited about it, and I'd seen Heart Eight too. It's and a great I, movie. I liked that mm-hmm. one as well. And so, um, I was supposed to go on a trip to New York to meet, hang out with my brother, and who was living in Chicago, but was going to be there, and we were going to hang out there for a little while and see friends and stuff. And I got a call. Would I like to go on an audition for? Her? Magnolia, and then, you know, I said, of course, so I can't, remember I canceled the trip, and um, they were like, you know, it's just going to be that the casting director, you know, the director won't be there and all that, so I went in, and I don't know what I, they would probably say that I was just, there. I was probably doing things that I wasn't aware of, you know, whatever, <laughs> but we ended up talking, she and I ended up talking for like an hour, and I know there was a camera in the room, and we had the scripts and everything, but we didn't. Read. We just were talking, and uh, she said, "Hold on a second and uh, and she got left and came back in with Paul. He was there. <laughs> and uh, it's not like he was watching from a room somewhere, but he was he was in the production office. And hey, hey, man, really great to meet you. And, and uh, we sat, yeah, and we talked about movies, you know. Awesome. And uh, at that time, my brother, who you know, I should say, is like in the uh, film uh, archiving and and. Uh, uh, preservation and and uh, you know runs works for the George Eastman House in Rochester, New York, which is like one of the largest collections of motion picture films in North America. is a bigger cinephile than I would be on any day. Uh, um, he uh, and was have always been a very early adopter of the new technology. So like 
first guy with with laser discs. First guy with um, he was the first person I ever knew. Like by like more than a year that had Netflix and was doing Netflix. <laughs> first person with a DVD. First person with Blu-ray. Blah blah blah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so at that point, DVD really hadn't quite taken hold. So it was like. I remember we talked about Laserdiscs a lot. I don't know. You had asked me this question before, and I, I was trying to remember. And that uh, Criterion Collections, the because this was something that you and I had discussed at one point, those old Criterions with the, how do you get the uh, commentary? Yeah. And a big one for Paul was that, that day at Blackrock. Yeah, he talks, Sturges. Yeah, I think he talks about that in the Boogie Night, one of the Boogie Nights commentaries. And my brother had all those, so, you know, we had seen, that was the first time I ever had seen commentary on a movie, like, the, the, where those Criterion laser discs. So we talked about that stuff, and then it was, like, a really long time, and he was like, so do you want to read? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I read the scene, and I remember he told me to do it again, to take the gum out of my mouth, or chewing gum, which I didn't even realize I was doing. And then I did it again. And then uh, one out of two times this has ever happened in my life, you know, it's usually like, okay, thanks a lot. And then you go and wonder, he's just like, so you want to do this movie? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and uh, looking back, it was like, I really looked up to him and I really still do. But it really freaks me out that I was 27, but he was only 28 when he made that <laughs> movie, you know? But, uh, and then what happened was it was like around Christmas time and they were starting to shoot in January, in early January. And I got a call a few weeks before saying that there was going to be a rehearsal day. And the rehearsal was everybody... They had to shoot that movie in segments when the actors were available. And so Julianne Moore's stuff was all the first part, and then Tom's stuff was the second part, and Phil and um, Rich Robards, you know, were later, and... And, you know, John Riley and all that stuff, you know. I think Riley was probably, he interacts more but with other people, but, you know, so he was probably around more, Bill Macy, all that stuff, Bill Macy and Harry Gibson and all those people. So the Julianne Moore part was first. And the rehearsal was everybody that works with Julianne in the movie sitting around a table for 12 hours. So it was myself, Phil Hoffman, Michael Murphy, Julianne Moore. Michael Murphy. Uh... God. A guy named Don McManus, who's a really good character actor, who plays a doctor. Does he play a doctor in a movie? He plays a, Michael Murphy's the lawyer. And uh, and all these people. And uh, it was just amazing. And it automatically, we were just like, oh, I'm part of this movie. And it's very smart on Paul's part. But also, you know, Paul's is a really great guy. So he... And then he loves actors. He obviously writes for them. So um, he really enjoyed it. And so right away, it was just like, by the time I showed up on the set on the following week, I already felt like I know this guy and, and, you know, I felt comfortable to do whatever. And the script is very meticulously written. He doesn't work that way so much anymore. I mean, I think even with Punch Drunk Love, he shot like a whole movie and then Sandler went off and did Mr. Deeds and they came back and had completely rewritten and reshot the movie. And a lot of that happened with There Will Be Blood, too. But back then, it was like, the script... And it's so good, who's going to argue? But, like, yeah. it had, like... I don't... I have it somewhere. I'll show it to you before we go. But it has, like, the lenses on it. And it has, like, you know... Oh, wow. But what it doesn't have is, like, a description, you know? He'd always said, like, I don't feel like an actor should be told what they're thinking, you know? Sometimes, as a writer, you do that to sell the script. But you don't need the actor's 
like you know and tell them what the motion and what the face looks like at that moment it's just the dialogue but it was very specific as to like what I remember lenses and speed like it ramps up to you know 36 frames and then goes back down again and all that kind of stuff and so we shot that scene in the pharmacy all day and it was just really great fun and uh, and it's obviously like an amazing scene not, not because of me but because she's so great and uh and uh, I still get recognized from that all these years later. But then, like, halfway through the filming, they had a party and where everybody else came together. I got to meet a lot more of the actors from the movie. And Paul said to me, I, I got another one. I, I'm going to another one for you. And I thought he was, like, offering me another, like, he was going to write another part for me in a movie or something. I don't remember what I thought. I was, like, <laughs> drunk and stuff. Um what I didn't realize is that just like anyone who knows that movie well it has all these hidden connections in it and all these Exodus 8-2 references and like every scene like the clock is 820 there's $820 I mean just like you know crazy like OCD like you know stuff but uh, he had had intended I play a pharmacist in the movie the opening scene in the movie is all these events that happened and I uh, was to be the pharmacist who gets killed in Greenberry Hill, London by three guys named Greenberry and Hill. And and they called me. It was five months later at the end of shooting. And by the time he was just wasted, like just completely emaciated, like he just made this giant monster of a movie and he was just white. He, was, he didn't have the energy he had at the beginning. But on the back lot of Universal and those old, like where they shot all the Universal, like Frankenstein and stuff, we shot... Oh, wow. It's this stuff with Bob Elswit with a Path A camera from 1911 with a hand crank. Bob had to have a metronome to keep time on it. Oh, and wow. it was that camera on all of Paul's, you know, so all the, on the dollies and cranes and all this stuff. Just amazing. Uh, he ended up shooting a, a, a music video for his girlfriend at the time, Fiona Apple, too, with that camera. And just as a cinephile, it's just like, wow, I'm around these amazing people who who were just really kind of beginning to do the amazing things that they were going to do, you know, with that movie. I mean, Elsewood obviously has gone on to, to amazing things, and, and, it's, and it's you know, Paul's become this generation's Kubrick, I think, and, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all those great people. And um, it was pretty incredible for, you know, when I think about it now, like 27 years old, and I was doing a lot of work at that time, and... Uh, it didn't always stay that way, you know, and so that was really, that was a really, it's something I'll, I'll always treasure. I hope I get a chance to work with him again. I, I'd still see him socially occasionally, and um, uh, he's married now and he's got kids, and it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to, to watch his, his metamorphosis. And but we definitely uh, had that, uh, had that love of uh, movies in common, and. Um, we usually end up talking about something or recommending something to each other if we do run into each other. But it's, it's been a few years since we've seen him now. I, I think I think you you're a, you're a natural for his aesthetic. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because of the Altman bleeding into his work. Yeah. And, and because I know that you're a big Altman fan. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. You, so. you have the face and personality that fits into his, his stock company. And well, yeah. Now he's doing like period stuff, which is like I have a good face for that. Yeah. So like I'm, you know, there weren't many parts in there will be blood that. Uh, I remember Cassandra calling me when they were starting to cast that and saying, like, 
because she knows I know movies and actors and stuff. She's like, I need old guys and really young people. Oh, that's awesome. like, oh, okay, so, but, you know, there wasn't anything. So, I, you know, I know that the one that he's getting ready to do is a 50s thing, but who knows, you know, I, I'm... I think you could do that, certainly. That would be great. That would be awesome. Uh, but, uh, yeah, hopefully our, our, our paths will dovetail again, but, uh, yeah. What's So what's the difference between, if, if there is, him and somebody like David Gordon Green, like, as far as their methods? Uh, well, David is... I mean, Paul's probably a lot more like David now. David, I met, again, through my brother, Jim, who at the time was working for Chicago Film Festival and was went to Berlin, where... George Washington premiered, which is David's first film. And, you know, my brother was one of the first people to say, hey, this is, you know, a great movie. So this group of guys from North Carolina School of the Arts who were out there. And for Berlin, it was probably like uh, David and I think Craig Zobel, who directed Great World of Sound, which I did, and maybe Danny McBride and Paul Schneider. You know, this group of guys have gone on to do a lot of things. That was their first thing they did. So I met David in L.A. about a month later. And we just hit it off as friends. So that was about a little over 10 years ago now. And um, we have just been friends primarily, but I work with him on Undertow, and I always see all of his first cuts of things. And, oh, cool. Um, and I, I always read for stuff. I, there's not always something for me in it, but I've done little things for him there, and obviously Great World of Sound was something that he had recommended me for and it turned out really well and was happy and have a really good relationship with Craig and um, David is very loose I mean David is I, I, I would guess David is probably a lot closer to Allman where he's, he gets pretty close to throwing the script out the window and a lot of what gets used is just the improvised stuff um, even though he's like very confident and he's got a great team of guys like Dave Tim Moore is a great cinematographer and he always works with great editors, and he knows movies, too, really yeah. well. And, and so when he's doing it, it's not just like a free-for-all. Like, I, I don't imagine he knows. I think he has a lot of fun in the cutting room, but I don't imagine he knows exactly how it's going to go together. But he enjoys making the pieces, and, and if it's good and it's fun, it'll end up being something that he can use, and that's good. So they're both wonderful guys. Uh I'd say David Stiles probably a lot looser and, um, you know, uh, a lot more Altman-esque even, you know, because he's just, he'll just move that camera around and zoom in and out for, for long periods of time. He starts to do that more. Um, I, it's a hard question to answer because I know him so much as a friend. Yeah. And it's hard to separate out what. Are you know? Obviously, I don't have that kind of relationship with Paul, so I, it would be hard to separate out what the differences primarily would be. But I think you can kind of see in their work that Paul has a kind of more formal style, and David is is, is much looser. And now he's doing different things too because he doesn't yeah. feel necessarily tied to you know doing things one particular way or or trying to you know emulate Malik. You know, or, <laughs> you know, he's he's gone on to. Everyone's like, well, is he doing these, like, dumb comedies? And it's like, all of us who know him are like, that comes as no surprise. That's Those movies are actually probably more reflective of who he is as a person now yeah, than, cool. uh, than ever. You know, that's probably what he's really been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah. His favorite movie is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, I think. Oh, wow. 
which you know has a scene where like Bill McKinney launches all those rabbits out of the trunk of the car and just starts shooting at him with it. With a that is a action shot. Such a wild scene, man. Bill ended up in uh, in Undertow as well. He's an interesting guy. Um, His website is actually squeallikeapig.com. You ever onto that? <laughs> no, I've never been there. Very strange man. I'll bet, man. I'll tell you some stories about him off uh, off the air. <laughs> okay. Um, I was going to say, you know, I just went to a screening of Breaking Away this weekend. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was playing until you uh, mentioned that. That's one of my favorite movies, too. Oh, so good with the crowd. But Dooley was there, and he was. I asked him about meeting Altman for the first time, and it was a really good story. But he was talking about, and we've both heard this sort of thing before, but just how... You know, Altman would sort of paint with people if, if you sure. see the film as a sort of mosaic. And I feel like uh, David Gordon Green really does that. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I just rem- remember that the night that uh, Mullet premiered at Sundance, Paul Dooley was there and he came and he really enjoyed it. And he came and hung out with us at in our condo. He's a great guy. So nice. And I remember this well because my father had a heart attack. And he was in, he was there when it happened. Oh wow! And uh, you know everything turned out okay. It wasn't too serious, but uh, my dad's still around, and he quit smoking. But Dooley was there, and he was like really like a very calming influence. That, that, I think maybe because like he was like that dad from Breaking <laughs> Away, you know, or, or, for or sixteen candles, candles. Yeah, the fatherly, you know, whatever. I I, I superimposed on him. But yeah, he's a really <laughs> lovely guy. I remember that. Oh, that is so cool. I'd love to have hang, hung out with him. Yeah, I got a picture, and I was my, my heart was in my throat. Yeah, he um, worked with him quite a bit. Though. But so you, earlier you were talking about mullet, <clears throat> and then sort of your writing career taking off based on the spec that you wrote soon mm-hmm. after that. Now, how did you get from there to working on... You worked on In Treatment Season 2. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, another part of my life has been uh, psychotherapy, and that, you know, it's been a real uh, important part of my life. I don't go to therapy anymore, but it was a really big part of my life. And um, at the time the first season was on, I should say, I guess it's a show about psychotherapy, a therapist who... Uh, treats different patients and is in crisis himself and it's based on an Israeli show and the format is unique in that it's a different patient every day of the week and then on the fifth day his therapy sessions with his you know his uh, advisor and uh, it's uh, it didn't really work in terms of the schedule was on five days a week in the first season but I loved it and that's a great show all I did was talk about it with my therapist and then I found out it was this phenomenon where that's all anybody was talking about <laughs> they would have these conventions with therapists where they just all talk about like all our patients just want to talk about the in treatment episodes and why aren't you more like Paul and like why don't we do this and actually like mostly led to like really great breakthroughs for people because they started talking about stuff more you know and so I was really affected by that show and uh, the opportunity came it was just one of those chance things, really. I, I loved the show. I hadn't thought about it for screenwriting. I hadn't thought about being on a staff for a show. And um, it just happened that I had written a script, an adaptation of a book called Strange Skies. And at that time, I met with a new agent who wanted to talk to me about television. He asked me what shows I like. I happened to mention that. It just so happened that the, the, the new showrunner was his client was in town on that day. Wow. 
gave him the script that night, liked it, and hired me on the show. And I went out to New York for a little while and worked on it. I didn't ultimately stay to go through the whole season. I kind of came up with the arc based on the Israeli, already existing Israeli show arc and uh, wrote three episodes and, and, and left because I was... I live in L.A. and it was in New York. And I, I love New York. It's a great city, but I didn't want to live there. And, and uh, I wasn't crazy about... I like to write my own things and you kind of really have to fit it not only within the format of what the people in the show want, but also what already exists. And so I couldn't really just kind of go out. I always want to be able to, like, if that thing... Exp- if I decide that that thing explodes and an elephant flies out of that that minute, I want to be able to do that, you know? And so it wasn't the right format for that. But I did have a really good experience writing it, and I'm very proud of what I wrote, and I was able to put a lot of, you know, what my experience, my life experience, my experience with therapy and stuff has been. And, um, you know, I would do it again uh, Um on a show that good it's just rare there's a show that good and it's a show that's just the episodes are just the patient talking to the doctor I mean it gets dramatic but it's like writing a play so it's not like writing different TV so I like writing dialogue and um, people talking to each other and I've spent I don't even want to add up how many hours I've spent on the couch so I uh, it was it was it was really a great experience to do now if I'm not mistaken was your stuff Focused on the John Mahoney character. Yeah, I wrote. They they would they hired five writers and then they assigned a different writer to each, uh, you know, patient or story arc. You all get together and talk about what the season's going to be, and you watch the Israeli season. You just talk about how things can change from the American version and how things are going to intersect. And they were trying out some different things, and and that was really great. That was like two weeks in New York. Well, he's like really fantastic writers like Sarah Treem who has written for I think she's on the third season too and she has written some uh, plays and things and Marsha Norman who wrote Night Mother and um, you know a couple other great you know New York writers and and, uh, you know just sort of doing that Dick Van Dyke show thing writer's room thing it's fun not as funny you know (laughs) writing about people with life threatening problems but uh, and neuroses but um that was uh, that was great. What was the question? Sorry, it was just about Mahoney. Did you get to yeah, so, deal with Mahoney? Did you ever deal with the actors? No, but you all... know, in the beginning of my career is I went to Illinois State University. And uh, see, all these things are linked. That's what's crazy. It's like, you know, <laughs> there really isn't a direct straight line, but they're all connected in some way. I went to Illinois State University, which is in normal Illinois, downstate Illinois. What they would call central Illinois, not necessarily southern Illinois. And uh, out in the cornfields. And that's the school where Steppenwolf Theater, they met and started. And Steppenwolf Theater is John Mahoney, um, uh, John Malkovich, Gary Sinise, Joan Allen, Terry Keeney, Jeff Perry, uh, Lloyd Metcalf, you know, one of the big regional theaters in the country. And um, so they gave an internship to one or two people every year, and I was a recipient of that. And uh, I worked with John on our show. He directed a play, a... uh, it was an Alan Ackborn play. And so he was, you know, a really nice man. And, uh, and we, you know, I, so I, I met him all those years ago. And when I left before production, I left actually before he was even cast. Oh, wow, okay. But uh, my friend, uh, Mike Daly, was working on a show that 
this guy's incredible. He's in his 70s, and he was doing eight shows a week in Chicago, flying to New York on Sunday night, shooting all day Monday, and flying back on Tuesday. How old? I mean, I don't know how old he is. He's in his 70s, and he's not well. Like, he had a car accident a few years ago. He was, you know, he's not in the prime of health. He smokes. But uh, he was doing that, and, and it's hard work. It's like Gabriel Byrne does something like, they shoot two and a half episodes a week, so he's shooting like 70 pages of dialogue or something a week, you know? And so, you know, it was a lot of work, and, and but my buddy Mike was, was working on the show that John was doing at Steppenwolf in Chicago at the time, and he sent along very nice, I mean, he was very complimentary about the script that I had written and everything. Oh, that's cool. So that's very cool. That's been our contact, and he was he was brilliant in it. But oh, yeah, he's a fantastic actor. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say, do you have any, and not to get anybody in trouble or <laughs> speak ill of anybody, but I mean, are there some on-set stories of if any of the you know number of films you've worked on that are funny or interesting, something that stuck out to you? Well, I worked on Pearl Harbor. Oh, I forgot with about Bay that. And, and Jerry Bruckheimer, and Bruckheimer's not around that much, but uh, he, you know. It was like a long process of when those movies that have the big ensemble cast of young guys in them go out, everybody's auditioning for the big parts or like the, you know, the secondary parts. The same thing happened with the Jesse James movie, you know, and uh, so I, I went through a long process of auditioning where like they were just the greatest, so nice and everything and um, both of them. And uh, and I didn't get the part of the... It was like one of the, you know, soldiers, you know, that's in, like, the group with, with Hartnett and, and Ben Affleck. And I got this part of this Navy newsreel reporter, um, which meant that I was running through at Pearl Harbor with shit exploding all over me and planes flying 10 feet above my head with, a, like, a... what must have been, like, a 10-pound... Bell and Howell 16 millimeter film camera around my neck all the time. <laughs> I remember I got a massage from from uh, a woman who was not strong enough to fix what was fucked up about my back <laughs> from running around with that thing all day long. That they sent this giant Hawaiian guy off to do me, and I remember when he put his hands on my shoulders, he went, "Jesus Christ, it was just so bad." But it was. Um, it was it was good. I had my old friend Mike Shannon on who was in that movie, so we you know, we started in theater in Chicago together, so that was great and we were riding around in a car together that was like being shot at and planes were flying over us. I mean it's all happening and we kinda of looked over each other and just were laughing. It's just ridiculous that that's where you know <laughs> our life was at that point. But uh you know, the 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 I like Michael, I bet let me make that clear I even went back and worked for him again on the island and I, I, my part was cut out of the movie but uh, I, I you know I like him but he's out of his mind and he's a screamer you know he yells all day long and he's you know he's working on these giant scale productions but like I mean he just sits there with a megaphone and just screams like you know you're running like a girl you know look at you you look like you're fucking dead out there <laughs> Just like you know, out of his mind, and and uh, it sounds like like a hyped up soccer mom. Oh, that's like unbelievable! Like you know, he'd like fire the entire wardrobe and props department, you know, in front of everyone because the dummies, the dead body dummies, didn't look good. And then the the producer would have to go and say, you know, very sorry, you know, he didn't mean that, and all that stuff, you know. Uh, and 
you know, they were really great. Actually, I did Mala right after that, and I had to do a reshoot, which was kind of an inconvenience to me because I was in the middle of working on something else at the time. I don't remember, but they really wanted me, and I said, well, you know, if, can you help me out with my short film? Just like anything. I didn't ask for anything specifically. They gave me all of my film stock, which was all... They shot like a million feet of film on 60... Gone in 60 seconds. And between that and Pearl Harbor, like, some insane amount of film. So Kodak was just like, whatever you want. <laughs> so that was really great. Barry Waldman, one of the producers, you know, and for Bruckheimer. They were really great to me after that. But it did... It, I'm going to sound like an ingrate, but you'll probably never hear this, but... Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> um, there's that story and again it's a, it's a Hollywood legend so I don't know that. well that's cool it ties into the Hollywood legend right right that's right. what I was thinking about good, good. about Jerry Bruckheimer um, that I only know Jerry to be the nicest guy and, and everything And uh, but uh, the, the legend is that Jerry Bruckheimer's at a pool in Vegas do you know this one? I don't know it I'm and there's like a <laughs> there's like a I'm sure this story's told, like, with other people back in the day, you know. It probably can be very easily found out, but... And uh, he sees, like, two really cute, but, you know, somewhat young girls across the pool. He's like, come over here. And he's, like, talking to them, and, you know... He says to one of the girls, you know, take your top off. <laughs> take your top off. And uh, she's like, what? And he's like, take your top off. She's like, I'm not going to take my top off. And, uh... He says, uh, don't you know who I am? You know, I produced uh, Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, you know, The Rock. He's going off all these credits and stuff. She's like, oh, what's your name? And he says, Jerry Ruckheimer. And she says, oh, you know my parents. And he says, who are your parents? And she says, uh, Kate Capshaw and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> His face goes white. And, uh, and, uh, his face drops and goes white, and, um, and he's like, how old are you? You know, and she's like a teenager or something, and he's like, okay, nice meeting you, whatever, goes white. <laughs> but, you know, people can go back and look at this. DreamWorks was about to close a huge deal with Bruckheimer, and uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> and Michael Bay stopped making movies with Bruckheimer and started making movies at uh, DreamWorks with Spielberg. Wow. So. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Conspiracy. I don't know. It's, you know, again, I only know the, uh, can say the nicest things about Mr. Bruckheimer, but, uh, I had heard that story. <laughs> it's a legend. I thought I might tell a story about Milton Berle's cock or something, but we heard all of those. It's big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his cock hasn't been covered very much on this podcast. Really? But It'd we, be hard to cover. You know? It's true. Not, not an, only, an audio format either. Um, <laughs> So, I want to talk about, like, your uh, voracious movie watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you and I are both big into that, but you set yourself a goal last year. Now, was it 365 new movies? Was that the goal? Or yeah, what? 365 movies that I had never seen before. Um, my brother, again, it always comes back to him. <laughs> I'm pulling up my iPad here because I've got the list here. Um shames me by having like an infant daughter and still seeing like he sees like at least five or six hundred movies every year and you were saying that's new movies those are movies that he's never seen before part of that is that he goes to several festivals a year as part of his job so he's seeing multiple films in a day but still it's like Jesus No, I mean, and he does watch things again too so it's like 
I don't know. Like, I so I set this goal. The year before was the first year that I had kept track, and it was like 200, and I was like, oh, man. So, needless to say, I didn't have a girlfriend at the time, and, uh, and I was just writing... Um, so I could do that whenever. So I just said that I would, you know, a movie a day. I actually ended up going slightly over. Let's see what I did. I think it went considerably over. Wasn't it almost like uh, no, I think it was like 390 or oh, okay. something like that. Let's see. 379. Wow. I'm Excuse that... me. Some real, you know, and you know, not that much crap. Because, like, what would happen was I was just, I'd go see things in the theater, obviously, and, like, good rep stuff and... But I would. I, there was just so many like classics, particularly American, you know, sort of classic films that I had never seen before. So and I it was it was like I didn't have a DVR for that long. So I was really like taking advantage of that with Turner and um, it was before I had HD. So not not more Turner and like you know HBO and Cinemax and things like that. Like the cable stations. But the the rules were that. Once I started to watch it, I had to watch it from start to finish. Oh, I didn't I know that. Stop watching it. Wow. So uh, there were times where I like got on my like you know meet Dave you know I like got on my computer when it was on you know, <laughs> with Jen, where Eddie Murphy is a spaceship. Um, <laughs> don't wow, ask I, me why. I, be, I was a fan of. I'm a fan of Norbit. That's a guilty pleasure for me. I think that's like a modern day like Jerry Lewis, Frank Dashlin. You know. Movie. You know. It's so funny you say that. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way because I really hated it. Before, before, I've only seen it the one time. See it again. Thinking about well, it that way, you I, appreciate it more. Yeah, I think I told you my son and I did a bunch of Jerry Lewis, and now yeah. when I'm looking back on it in my mind. And also, I, I just, I've been watching some Tashin lately too. I can't. Is it's that really the, there? Is that us or is that really there? No, I think it's there because I. It, it's got the same. I mean, just broad jokes that are really just funny that you shouldn't laugh at because they're dumb. But it also has that what the fuck like weird shit in it where it's just like that you see the Jerry Lewis where it's like I think we appreciate him in the same way where it's like we think he's really funny and a genius, but also just you see a movie like which way to the front and you're just like what. Odd man, or like, <laughs> hardly working. It's just like, what? Like sometimes it's just inept, and you're just like, what is it? It's but it's definitely like the personality of person coming through. Yeah. We know Eddie Murphy's crazy, so like watching with those eyes. But some of it is really funny, and some of it's just kind of like, it's that combination of WTF and, and legitimately funny. But uh, so the guy that did Norbit did meet Dave, so I thought you know. Even though I heard it was bad, I heard Norbit was bad too. I give it a shot. <laughs> it's no Norbit. But what what I found like what happened was like I watched like I'm looking at the list here, and the first movie that I watched was To Have and Have Not, which I'd never seen. Oh, nice. And so then you're just like, well, I'll see more Howard Hawks movies, or uh, and I start watching more Bogart movies, you know, and you know I hadn't seen Key Largo and. And then you just like you know you see a Cagney movie you want to watch that. I was gonna know? say, didn't you do a run of Cagney if I remember? Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. I have been like for years. I, it's funny. I'd, I'd always been a fan of his, and I've been compared to him, and some people say I look like him. And oh, things, so interesting. But I hadn't seen that many of his movies before the last few years, and I, I've watched a lot of those. But some of these movies are just they're just really. Uh, What's the one where he's taking pictures, or there's like it's got. It's like Private Eye or... Oh, uh, Picture Snatch. Picture Snatch. Yeah. Is that good? Like, it's great. I gotta see All it. those pre-code films are really good because they're racy. Picture Snatcher, Lady Killer. My favorite is The Mayor of Hell. Is that on DVD? Yeah, oh, that's part of like one of the Warner's um, 
gangster collection. I think it's number three. Oh, okay. Two or three, and it's 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 a really great movie. He's like a a hood who's been elected to office as like an alderman, but he gets an assignment at this like reform school for boys where they're just out of control. It's all the dead end kids, you know, and like and it's great. I gotta check that out. Yeah, that set has like. That Bogart movie, Black Legion, where he's like in the clan and stuff. Oh, fuck, I haven't seen oh, that. Oh, get that set. It's the if you don't get any, if you just get that one, it's great because it's got Pixar, Snatcher, and Lady Killer, and all. It's like it's all like the pre-code ones. Cool. Cool. I gotta check those out. Yeah. I st- I would be so screwed if I followed your rule of you know watching all the way through. We have children. You know, I just, I respect that. I think that's a really, that's really something to take I would on. never try it again, man. It was <laughs> fucking exhausting, and it was just like, you know, there were other things I could have been doing. Luckily, I was feeling kind of antisocial, you know, at the time. But, like, I'm glad because it led to, like, me developing new appreciation for, for like, Gregory Peck was somebody I just sort of, like, kind of just thought like ah oh, he's kind of a stiff or whatever and I just saw these like Peckman I'm like he's so great you know some of my favorites like um, Guns and Navarone I'd never seen or um, you know so I just started watching like a bunch of you know Gregory Peck and he's one of my favorites now um, uh, movies by directors that I like but that you know um, I hadn't heard much of and things that just end up like surprising you like a, that Zoltan Korda movie Sahara with Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I remember you luckily you away. So good. Have you seen I, it? No, I haven't fucking. I you know, it's just I love the bunch of guys. It's a bunch of guys in a tank in the middle of World War II in the middle of the desert, stranded, and they find an oasis. And right when they do, a group of the enemy comes in, and they have an enemy captive, and it's just them trying. Everyone trying to survive. And, you know, guys get knocked off one by one and you get to know each character. Like, I love that. That's what Snow Ponies, the script, is is, is about. And all of, like, The Thing and Predator. I was just like, immediately, The Thing maybe is one of my favorite of all yeah, time. Yeah, me too. So when I think of and that... Those, uh, what, what's, uh, what's the famous one? Uh, uh, God, why am I thinking of it? I, I just like survival movies and I like... Siege movies, you know, like <laughs> Salt and Precinct 13 and Rio Bravo and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. It's one of those movies that's just really good. It's just, what I love too is like, these movies are short, you know, they're sometimes 70, 80 minutes. That's another reason why you can watch so many of them. Yeah, I can get the job done, you know? They're just like, why is, you know, not to harp on Bay again, but it's like, I enjoy the Transformers movie, but why is, why are they two and a half hours long? Yeah. You can no. watch two <laughs> Jim K, Jimmy Cagney movies in that time. Or, yeah, I mean, we just talked about, uh, I picked It's a Gift to, to talk about on the podcast a couple weeks ago. The movie's like 68 minutes. It's one of my blind, I, I've, my blind spots are like, I need to see those W.C. Fields films, I need to see, I'm really bad with like, I've only seen a few Kurosawa films and I've only seen I'm a, few a little weaker on that too, I'm about a half dozen or so. I'm not that enthralled with them. I, I like, I like the noirs, I like those, like are, are the samurai a- ones, I guess. You know what happens? It's it happened to me with Godard, where like I saw all the movies that he influenced first, and so the movies just don't seem that interesting to me. No, they're not because the other ones are better. You know, I don't think I think Godard is whatever, and it's the Truffaut same thing. Or something else, but. and obviously like Kurosawa's, you know, the skills there, and I appreciate. But when I watch those movies, I I don't know. I've seen movies that maybe do it 
that I like better that are that you know if I had seen those movies first, it would have been blown away. But Truffaut, I love. Yeah, no, he's he stands the test. Yeah, but I mean, are you an Ozu fan? What do you think of Ozu? I've only seen a few Ozu movies. Maybe even just one. Good morning. I've seen that movie. Well, that's and cool. That's great. Yeah, I, he's. I, I got into a run of his stuff, and I. I for me, he's the guy versus Chris. Yeah. I've talked about this before, but he's he's my guy versus Chris. Well, I love Jacques Demy, and I love uh, I love Melville. So like Melville's awesome. Those two and Truffaut, I'm like it are. Eh. Yeah. And I love. Uh, I like a lot of uh, uh, Claude. Uh, Claude is it Claude Lelouch? No. Uh, Claude Chabral, like La Ceremony. And I haven't seen that. Gotta see that. It's great. You ever seen that short? What's the short of his with the car racing through the city? You ever seen that? I've heard about it, but... Oh, Rendezvous, I think it's called. It's yeah, like, I've it's, not seen it. It's this car, like, going, like, 150 miles an hour through the middle of Paris, like, really early in the morning when nobody's on the street, in, like, <laughs> real time. But, uh, yeah, but Godard is like, eh. It just doesn't... Uh, t- to me, movies are emotional, and I, I appreciate intellectual things about movies later when I'm thinking about them. But the initial experience has to just be a purely visceral, emotional one, you know. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, I was gonna say, do you do you have any memories, like early film memories, either as a child or would be when you started, like you're talking about the Maltese Falcon? Yeah. What, either stuff you remember as a kid, and or things that launched you into this cinephile state you're in now yeah I, well my parents were always really in the movies and my earliest memories I think probably the first movies that I remember seeing at least in the theater um, were the Disney films the first movie I remember seeing is a movie called No Deposit No Return oh shit like a bumbling kidnappers it's Darren McGavin and Don Knotts Don Knotts yeah and I don't remember the movie at all but I remember going I think I may have seen some of the cartoons before that, but that was the first one. Like, 76, I remember, I was five. I remember seeing that. I remember seeing the Shaggy DA, which is probably, like, (laughs) at Christmas time or, like, early 77. And then Bad News Bears we saw. And that was a big deal because it was the first PG movie. And I remember not... That's one of my favorites now. And we both love Michael Ritchie, especially in the 70s, but... I, I, I wasn't that enthralled with it at the time because I remember crawling on the ground finding like popcorn and Jordan Olives and stuff. <laughs> but uh, so there was that, and then like in the you know our parents let us watch a lot of stuff that we shouldn't have probably, but I'm glad that they did. But yeah, same here. During that time when movies were on tele- commercial television all the time, and I remember that like mid to late '70s. And it might be me, but I remember seeing these movies multiple times, and maybe it's just because I remember them so well. But I remember seeing Paper Moon and What's Up Doc a lot. And Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was like the first Scorsese movie that I'd seen. And the the only one I saw for a while. I saw King of Comedy when it came out later, but... um, and, uh, And then, like, Cuckoo's Nest, I remember that really was on commercial television and that really affected me because that was like what is this it seemed like a documentary and, you know I, I mean it seemed real because I didn't know what a documentary was but and I didn't know Jack Nicholson but like I you know maybe knew who he was but and uh, and I just thought that movie was really funny and sad at the time because those guys were doing crazy things and I didn't understand why and then like that was really we were really into movies my mom got a job with a company called On TV which was like 
in the Midwest was like the Z Channel out here. It was a box Ooh. that you got. It was before cable. It came to our town. So they had cable like on the East Coast, but not in Illinois. And, and so she worked for that. So we got that free. So I just, that's when I saw like the producers had been on a lot and Take the Money and Run had been on a lot. And I'd seen those. But I started to see all those Mel Brooks and Woody Allen movies. Which really, you know, are still a very strong influence on me, and, and uh, uh, seeing those was really, it really affected me. And then there was like this tremendous period of just watching stuff. And we moved to New Jersey when I was ten, and uh, I had a really good friend who had a VCR, so we started watching stuff. But we had mostly, mostly watched more recent stuff or stuff that we'd seen over and over again I saw Animal House like I saw Animal House on commercial television twice edited with everything taken out of it and thought it was the greatest movie ever and when I finally saw it I, my head almost exploded it was so good but uh, and uh, and then we moved back the summer of 85 we moved back to the Chicago suburbs and I got a VCR as a 8th grade graduation gift oh wow and that's when my brother and I started seeing everything and that was um, Scorsese and Kubrick in particular we'd seen 2001 and we'd seen uh, Dr. Strangelove we, I remember we walked we went to see 2001 at the Arlington Heights library and walked out and we were like what the fuck is this like because <laughs> we love Star Wars and we were just like this is some boring shit you know that's like my favorite movie just about now but uh uh and so that summer of 85 before I started high school it was just like this massive education seeing all these movies for the first time and getting movies from the library like The Graduate and The Apartment and things like discovering that I remember my brother bought the uh, and you mind you know it's VHS pan scan so that's how you're seeing the movies but the Stone Cry like The Wild Bunch that was the first time I saw that and um, you know watching movies every night with my family so that when I started high school I was just like certifiable and my brother got a job that summer at a movie theater so we saw everything for free and I got a job there the following year and for the next say five or six years one or the other of us or one of our friends worked so we saw everything that came out as well and And this is can you say when that was yeah it's like like, uh, 85 okay it was when we moved back and then like like 91 wow around the time my brother was you know leaving college or whatever and um I got that film study class, and the guy started talking about, you know, we'd watch the movies in the class, so it was like, I remember watching Dirty Harry and The Godfather and Maltese Falcon, Strozek I saw in that class, and that really blew my mind. That's a pretty amazing film. And so I started to understand, even though we had read all those books, like, you know, you and I talk about cult movies, my brother had those, and kind of my life had been sort of devoted to like tracking all those movies down because so many of them were not available for so long that they became like holy grail movies you know yeah but uh we started to talk about theory and like why this was done I remember the end of that Baltzy's Falcon the the elevator door slamming on Mary Astor in the bars you know and what that represented I'm like yeah, oh, okay I'm getting that now even though I like I had watched movies over and over again and studied them I hadn't thought about how they were made so much maybe and, like, right at that time, I was a sophomore in high school. I was 15, in 1986. And my brother had gone to see Blue Velvet. 
and I we saw the Elephant Man, and we saw Dune, and I had not seen Eraserhead. So there was a Lynch thing. You were like, we've seen him. Well, we. I mean, like he used to have double features, and my mom would take him. So we saw like the Elephant Man with Hopscotch. That Walter Matthau. Whoa. Yeah, uh, Ronald Neen movie. He just died, Ronald Neen. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, wait, so those two movies played together? Yeah, movies played together all the time. Like so I think they were probably both Paramount films, oh, and they yeah, put them yeah. on the same bill, That's or right. like. You're right. They weren't concerned with, like, sucking the blood out of all of us all the time. Like, they, after a movie... Yeah, you gotta remember, too, like, before home video was big, movies played forever. Yeah. So, like, they'd play it for six months and then put it with Hopscotch or whatever, you know. And so, I'd seen those movies, so I didn't really have a strong sense of, like, David Lynch style or anything. But my brother saw that movie, Blue Velvet, and I knew that it was, like, controversial in some way. And, um... And to be honest, like, the sex part of it didn't really penetrate when I saw it the first time. Not to use a bad word. (laughs) But uh, I remember this theater, the Ridge Theater, which was a multiplex, which opened up right near our house. We could watch to it. It was a weeknight. And we worked for the same chains, and we could see it all for free. And... That movie changed my life. That was about the uh, what was nasty that was underneath the suburbs where we were living, and what was wrong with it, and the, the ugliness crawling underneath it. And I, you know, I always felt weird living where I did. You know, I liked growing up in the suburbs, but there was something wrong. So I think it spoke to that. But the way that that opening sequence and the sound was really loud, and and the visuals and the way that opening sequence it's like you know the the crossing guard and the firemen waving and the white picket fence with the flowers and then all of a sudden the the dog starts barking and the guy has a stroke watering his lawn and the hose is wrapped around it and then you know we go into the lawn and we see the bugs yeah and i was just like it was just everything about movies and what they were was just speaking to me in that moment that was like this is what I want to do and I understand this, you know. And um, before that, it was just, I think, even though I love movies, I really want to be an actor. And so, like, a couple of years before that, I didn't really, I hadn't really seen, maybe saw, like, De Niro and Brando on a few things, and I'd seen The Godfather, obviously. But uh, it was Mickey Rourke in The Pope of Greenwich Village. My mom took me to see that movie, and I was like... That's what I want to do, like that. You know, he sort of led me t- to them. But uh, he's, you know, that was like a really strong influence on me. I have that poster in here still that I have since, you know, I got it in 1984. I think I asked the guy at the theater to give it to me. Oh, I have the same one. It still has like the tax in it and everything. That was really like a powerful thing. But Blue Velvet, that just opened my mind up about movies and about my life and the world that I lived in and everything. And how those things could be uh, um, a part uh, of each other and be together and one influence the other in ways that I, you know, probably won't... I still haven't and probably will never be able to do myself, but, like, that... I look at that kind of, like, as a turning point. That that movie really um, taught me a lot about movies and about myself and what I liked and how I was going to do it and how to go about it. That I wouldn't quite call it my favorite movie, but it was on MGM HD the other night, and I just I was supposed to go out, and I just ended up sitting <laughs> and watching it forever. But uh, 
that movie, maybe more than any other, has had a really the most profound effect on my on my life. Yeah, yeah. it's. I mean, it's it's funny you say that because I remember when I was in college, I I made like <clears throat> the equivalent of like a visual mixtape. Yeah. Where I put together the scene from Taxi Driver. Where DVD he, DJ. That's what we call it. <laughs> this is. I think this is VHS to VHS. Yeah. When I was doing this, so I took the the scene of Travis Bickle when the, when he puts the milk in the coffee. Yeah. It was that scene cut to? If I remember correctly, the Blue Velvet scene cut to the end of um, Doctor Strangelove with When We Meet Again. Right. And those are the three that I remember, but those are three things that really hit me, too. I mean, it, that opening of Blue Velvet is unforgettable. I mean, the whole movie is unforgettable. And then that. And it's like not, there's one, it's like not dated because he said it in this weird, like, netherworld where it's not the 80s and it's not the 50s. There's one scene where there's a party with a bunch of girls and they have, like, the crunchy 80s hair, but other than that, it's like. It's timeless. Yeah. And and it's not... It's sort of in between. I mean, I love his just straight-up dream movies, too. Like Lost Highway and, and, yeah. and Mall and Drive. Especially, I like Lost Highway better, even. but And even Inland Empire, too. But, like, it's in between his, like, straight-up narrative films and those dream films. And it's just so... It's kind of like the rubber solo revolver of David Lynch, because it's like that period in between. And those seem to be the things that I always like. You know, as like... Almost transitional period. Yeah, movies. like I love the Dylan albums that are like Highway 61 and Blood and uh, 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 bringing it all back home because it's like the link between the folk and protest songs and this like totally new thing that he's going to do. Yeah. You know, and I love all of it, and he's my favorite. But like that period is just like there's something about that. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'll think about it more that well, I really it, respond to. It's probably, I mean, I'm guessing there's some kind of period of discovery that the filmmaker is going through. They're, they're used to making a certain kind of film, yeah. and then they go into this thing, and it's a new thing. And it's not like, I don't think filmmakers intend to do the same shit over and over again. They just sort of end up. No, and I don't think it's conscious that they're like, yeah. you know, totally, totally unconscious. It's a new thing. Because like, Dylan, you know, or Lynch, you know, they end up completely reinventing everything. And... I think there must be something about me that's experiencing that with them. That's a really great feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, we sort of touched on a few things. Actually, we've talked about a ton of movies, but <laughs> is there some stuff uh, that you've been wanting? And I've asked you this question yeah, before. So I, don't I, know. Know if I, made, I made a list of some things, but I, I know we talked about some of this. But You gave me a great list before. I remember... Uh, uh, Violent Saturday was on your list. Oh, yeah. Did you end up seeing it? Which is fucking great. It's great. They had really a print good. of it at Eastman House with my brother. Oh. And I and so I watched it there, and now they've been starting showing Turner and Fox movies. But, scope, right? Wasn't it Scope? Yeah. Yeah, it looks good. I, that actually got me on the big Richard Fleischer kick, because I had sort of kind of dismissed him, but like he's made some of my favorite oh, movies, awesome. like uh, Boston Strangler and... Uh, that movie of his I really love The New Century yeah I was gonna say is that it it's so good it's a good god fucking George he's yeah. got and um, even like his sort of like lesser minor films are really entertaining you know no I like his shit a lot did yeah. he do um Soylent Green oh yeah Fantastic Voyage what about uh Sino, Sino Evil isn't that Sino him? Evil is it's good a great underrated uh, Compulsion yeah um I haven't seen The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing I know that uh my brother likes that. And you know who's... I think Alexander Payne is a big fan of that one, too. Interesting. I um, so I didn't there? even get to the question here. The question is actually, are there films that you want to see on DVD that haven't come out? And maybe never will. Yeah. Here's a... You know, you said, like, what are the... Oh, the ones that are on DVD. Yeah. You know, occasionally some of these... I've seen some of them, and some of them... 
I haven't seen. Some you want to see. And some, like, play sometimes. Drive, he said, which we talked about earlier, which is Jack Nicholson's movie, which is great. I love it. It's one of my favorites. We're sitting next to a poster of it. Awesome poster. Um, Song of the South, I saw the last time it was theatrically released, around the same time, 86, 87. And it was great, and uh, now Disney says they will never release it, which you just think is preposterous. Yeah, I think they might not, though. They might actually not. No, I know, they will. It's I so mean, cr- yeah. I was just noticing... You- it's hard to defend them doing it, but it's just like, God, there's so many people who just love that movie. I mean, I know lots of people, that's like their favorite movie. Yeah, and I wonder, but is part of that because of the rarity? I mean... No, I mean, there's people that have bootlegs of it that oh, yeah, watch it. Yeah. There's a very well-known actor who's a friend of mine that has it and watches it all the time. That's cool. Uh, we talked about Ed Rafferty and the Goldust Twins. Have you seen that movie? Uh, yeah, I have uh, one sheet of that. Is it any good? It's okay. It's okay. It's just, for some reason, I'm fixated on why. I think because I liked a couple of Dick Richards movies that I've seen, and I like Alan Arkin. And yeah, it's pretty good. It's from that era of like the stuff that I like. I mean, I don't know if it's it, any good. It feels akin to Freebie. I know you're a big Freebie. In the yeah, movie I love fan. that. So it's kind of like that era Arkish. That's the, probably or Arkin, Arkin, not Arkish. Yeah. Arkin, Arkish. It's Arkinish. <laughs> but that's genre. right around. What's the um, what's the really uh, Deadhead Miles? Oh right, that sort of saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't seen either. I've seen a bootleg. Of it. I know there's a bootleg out there. It's not very good. Welcome to LA, the Alan Rudolph. I think is that his first movie. I think it. It aired. It, they showed it at. Um, Cine Family not too long ago. I wanted to see Remember My Name last that, year, which is. Amazing. I saw that based on your yeah. really, really being excited about it. I thought it was fucking fantastic. Great. Um, there's a movie... You know those movies like that you saw when you were a kid and they just like affect you in some way and you know they're probably not good but they're not available? Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it and I probably shouldn't have because I didn't understand anything about relationships or love or whatever, but that movie Endless Love with Brooke Shields <laughs> and the guy's like obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. I just remember being really affected by that. And for some reason, it's never been out on DVD or anything. I think I have a Region 2. Oh, do you? Yeah, a Region 2. Is it any good? I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> it's one of those... Maybe we should watch that together. Dude, I'd love to check it out. I just out. remember being really disturbed by it and like... There's, I, okay, you know what? I watched the beginning of it, and, and I remember she's got a really possessive family that kind of right. freaked, freaked me out to the point that I was like, I don't know if I want to watch well, this. Well, the right thing now. that freaked me out is like the guys really in love with her, and they and they they're in love with each other. Oh no, is it his family that's possessive? Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. And they're in love with each other. No, I think it's, it's hers. hers. You're right. You're right. You're right. And but it's like they're teenagers. And he, like, burns her house down because he, like, he's so in love with her. And he gets sent to, like, a mental institution where I guess Tom Cruise, it's his first movie, and he's one of them. Oh, wow, I didn't even I think he burns his house or he tries to kill the father, something like that. And, uh, but the thing that really bugged me is then, and then he's obsessed with her. I have this thing with obsession. I find, I realize that most of my favorite movies are about obsession one way or another. And, uh, and then, like, years later... He runs into her on the street or something. And his feelings are still the same, but she's, like, moved on in her life. Kind of Splendor in the Grass has that a little bit, too, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I remember that was, like, really... That freaked me out. That was just like, whoa, why is she, like, dissing it? <laughs> like, you know, I didn't understand, like... I know, like, I was crazy and everything, but... Uh, <laughs> but I want to see it again, because I, I just have, like, really strong feelings even now thinking about it. And I bet it's not that good, but, like... I don't know. Um... Here's ones that I haven't seen that that come recommended to me. Love and Bullets, the Bronson movie. Oh. Have you seen it? No. I think they have it on VHS at Cinephile. Cool. But Josh Fadum, who's my friend that works there, says that's great. And it's Rod Steiger as a mob 
boss, but I think he's got a speech impediment of some kind. Mm. And Bronson, and uh, I don't think it's... Is it Jill Ireland or maybe some other actress? I would assume Jill Ireland by default. But yeah, but I, think, I feel like somebody else. John Huston was fired from it. Oh. And Stuart Rosenberg took over. But I heard that's really good, and I want to see that one. Cool. Fellini's Casanova is one that I've like had the soundtrack for that forever, but never seen with Donald Sutherland. Me neither. Um, and then there's a couple Michael Caine movies that I've seen that I watched prints of at Eastman House. Black Windmill? Was that one? Black Windmill. Nice. Have you seen it? No. It's great. I want to. It's Don on Siegel movie. I love Siegel. He's like a uh, CIA agent, like covert guy. And they, somebody kidnaps his kids and they want money and he's just like, fuck you, and he just goes after them. Well, we were talking about the, the Harry Palmer movies. Those are great. True Love. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I love um, Ipcris File. Yeah, that's great. And the other you, ones you, are good. Billion Dollar Brain is really good, too. Yeah, and th- that's not on Blu-ray yet, is it? No, they released a DVD, but apparently they cut out all of it because the, the Russians listen to the Beatles and they have the Beatles albums. Oh, shit. And they... The Apple's like Well that's why it hasn't been available fastidious. Exactly yeah, okay. Now it's available But I heard they just cut it out Because I bought that MGM sh- No I guess it's a So sh- like it cuts out And then it just doesn't even make any sense Which yeah. is a drag But And then The Island Michael Ritchie's movie Have you ever seen that? Yeah and that's I have a German DVD of that So good <laughs> It's very good in, in a certain way Yes So I think that those are the ones that I got I know you asked me about Your patron saints too Yeah yeah If you uh, have a favorite Um Charles Bronson and Henry Silva can be could be obscure or not doesn't have to be well obviously my favorite Charles Bronson movie is Once Upon a Time in the West I don't think there's one better than that but like to when be. we get down to quote unquote Charles Bronson well, think, movies yeah. Mr. Majestic which is Richard Fleischer as well that's right is great and I think it's the only original screenplay that Elmer Leonard wrote it's really good Oh, not based on one of his own books no it's oh, not based wow. on a book or anything he wrote a he based a he wrote a book based on it after it came out um, but the one that I could be shooting myself in the foot I know Cinephile has a letterbox DVD of this but I haven't seen it since Cable was first on it's called The Evil That Men Do oh that's cool I haven't J. seen Lee it. Thompson movie I haven't seen it but I know that there and are it's people. like Bronson hunting basically like Mengele in South America and I just remember that the Mangala guy like hooks electrodes to a dude's nuts in one scene. And that was like really intense. But I remember that being really good. I have no idea if it is or not. Okay, and that's it's not- one of those I imagine it's probably pretty good. But uh, they Sony released a DVD of it early on, in it's letterbox, but it hasn't been since. Okay, I gotta look that. Look for they that. have it at Cinephile though. Okay. Right. Um, and then I saw one at Eastman House, which is a Michael Winner, another Winner from Winner. Called the Stone Killer, which is the trailer was on one of the like Hard Times or something. I was like, that looks awesome. And then they never released it. I don't know why. And it's pretty good. I think I think you can see that online. I think Crackle. Oh really? Okay. And I've been meaning to watch it, but I don't love to watch movies online. I I don't either. So I got to see that. That's got to be good. Yeah. And no, there's one that you just reminded me because there's one that somebody sent me an online link to, but I just haven't watched it, which is. the uh, Peter Himes movie Busting with Elliot Gould and Robert Blake, a cop buddy movie. Yeah, you would dig that. That I have seen. Yeah, that I want to cool. see that. That's, I mean, that's Gould in his prime, you know, where he can almost do no wrong. Right. Sort of. And then the Henry Silva is great. I obviously love... Well, you didn't mention Death Wish 3, though, because I know you and well, I both love Death, Death we, Wish 3. We, that's, you know, a whole other show. <laughs> that's a movie you can't say it's underrated. You can't 
say it's good, you can't say it's bad. It's just this beautiful <laughs> thing. Have you seen Rodney Asher's Death of the Death of the Giggler? I think you sent me that, oh which was God, freaking so hilarious. Rodney's a brilliant guy. He freaking makes these hilarious. Shorts so it's so esoteric in a way. I don't know. I think it's on Funny or Die, but it's a. Yeah. He goes and he just takes a digression from one moment in the movie. Now Rodney's written an entire script of like a full length feature script of Death Wish Three Digressions. <laughs> if he ever gets a chance to make it, it's gonna be amazing. But he also oh. made a, he made another great short called The S from Hell, which is a documentary sort of about children that were terrorized by the Screen Gems logo at the end of like <laughs> the Flintstones and stuff when they were kids it's like this yeah, I, I think no I've seen that it's really good I've seen that that's fucking hilarious but uh sorry but, I'll, but Death Wish 3 like it's like yeah it's it's inept I mean it, it the people overuse that it's so bad it's good too much yeah. like things are usually either bad or they're just good and you don't want to admit it but Death Wish 3 really is so bad that it's good. It's one of the few movies that you could truly say that about, I think. Would you agree? I agree. Well, it's I've... almost like Dada. Like that scene where, the scene early on when Ed Lauder and Bronson meet. You notice how much, just watch that scene next time. They covered it from like 60 different angles for some It's a dialogue scene, like a couple pages long between two guys. And it just keeps cutting and then it's like, it's almost like it's a gag. Because like then it's like underneath his arm, and then it's like behind a chair in the corner, and then it's like up, and it's just like, what the fuck? Like that has to be intentional, but maybe the rest of it is so inept that it's maybe not. Like it's clearly mostly shot on a soundstage in England. It didn't even bother painting the mailbox blue. It's just a red mailbox in the middle of the thing. Oh yeah, I forgot about. That. And it's a white gang that shaved their head up the middle and put tattoos on there. But it's God, it's amazing to watch that over and over again. I wish it was I wish it was a nice I wish they'd run that on MGM H D. They will soon. They don't even have a letterbox uh, I know. You know, and I need to really appreciate that <laughs> the, the composition of that film. Absolutely, man. Uh, so Henry Silva yes, Henry I Silva. love Ghost Dog, which is the Jim Jarvis yes, movie, which yes. is great. He's I remember like, I, I saw I was in line early early when I was living in LA. Ghost Dog came out I think around Early 2000, the day that David Green and I met, that's what we did. We went to, we had burritos at Paquito Moss on Sunset and one Sunset Five at the Sunset Five. That's fuck. That's hilarious because I was there at the Sunset Five. I don't know if I was in line for something, but Henry Silva got brought up. To, oh, really? And it must have been like a premiere, but my friend and I were just like, holy shit, that's Henry Silva. And he obviously looks a little older, but they, were, right. they must have been having a ghost dog premiere. Or I first became aware of him with Sharky's Machine. I remember that he was really creepy and that was on cable. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I saw like Manchurian Canada and stuff later. But this one I saw a couple of years ago. It's a... Uh, what do they call these Italian uh, detective the Jalos? Polizia. Polizia. Yeah. Called the Italian Connection. Oh, Manhunt. Yeah, this is one that. Or the, Manhunt. Yeah. Yeah, the guys on the show, the gentleman's guy, they actually talk about Polizia films all the time, and they did the trilogy, uh, the right. trilogy, and that that movie is fun. Yeah. So the lead guy Mario Adorf, he's yeah. like, he's wrongly accused by a mob guy of doing a crime, and they send. I mean. This just alone, you just you had me at. They send Woody Schrode and Henry Silva <laughs> to kill him, who are kind of like the original John Travolta and Sam Jackson. They they dress in the black suits. Wow, I didn't thought about that. Actually, 
uh, Lee Marvin and the Killers and and Clue Gallagher more like that yeah. the Killers, but but the, it's because it's a black guy and a white guy, and yeah. they kind of do that thing where they raise their gun at the same time. Yeah. But the thing that I remember from this movie is that uh, Mario Adorf is that the dude's name, the main Adorf, guy, yeah, yeah. yeah Adorf. Is that that like foot chase that's like twenty minutes long or something? One of the best chases in a movie period. Oh in man, my opinion. it's awesome! And, and I showed it to my son at one point, but I didn't oh, want to. Yeah. I didn't want to show him the end. Oh, is he? He's eleven. Oh. I didn't want to show him the end where he kills that guy. So right. I just and I didn't want to show him the beginning where the, the, I think his kids get run over or something. So I had to like pause it, and I'm like, okay, bud. So this is a chase scene. And these guys, I didn't want to set it up too much, but I'm just like, right. watch this. And so you watch the chase scene, and then I paused it right before he kills the guy at the end. And he was like, oh, what's... And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not interesting from here on out. But but I had to show him, because I was like, this is the most amazing Did you chase. show him the fight scene from They Live? You got to show him that one. Too. I showed him all of They Live. Yeah, well, that just that fight scene that's like 10 minutes long. Yeah. The scenes are great. Yeah. I'm to point out that I'm missing... Uh, Massacre, Massacre Mafia style tonight at the New Beverly. Oh no! Do this, but I, oh, I saw it gone. With, I saw it gone with the Pope. I still haven't seen it. Amazing. <sighs> but I, I laughed because I was tired and didn't see Massacre Mafia style. But then I saw the trailer. Like, I heard it. Like, what? The trailer looks so good. It's so good. I, well, dude, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that was tonight. No, you know, I didn't realize until until like right before you came over. Oh. I, just, I noticed it, but uh, I, feel I, bet, I bet they'll bring it out because I know they're bringing out Gone with the Pope uh, DVD. They got it. They should do a double disc. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Italian Connection I, I I recommend has an amazing foot chase in it, and, and it has Henry Silva and Woody Strode as hitmen duo, and uh, I don't know what Above the Law is good, right? Yeah, it's great. I love Some it. Of the good uh, Steven Seagal movies. You're Obviously, talking- I love. I just want to talk about this because I remembered it. We went and saw it in the theater because we had the trailer for it in our theater. Played in one theater and for a week in Chicago. We went downtown to go see it. Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh, is he in that? I totally uh, he forgot. hosts uh, bullshit or not. <laughs> it's like a Ripley's or not. Uh, uh, well, believe it or not show, and it's where the uh, the they uh, posit that the Loch Ness monster was Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Wow, and I totally remember the way that he says bullshit is really fucking yeah. cool. Bullshit or not? Yeah, it's great. It's playing on the uh, was like Jack Palance was the Ripley's Believe It or Not. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Of it. Believe it or not. <laughs> I was just watching Tango and Cash uh, also for the show this week, and, and Palance is just too constantly. My friends and I. That's that one is so bad. It's bad, but you just watch it over and over again because yeah. it's so bad. Um, which is rare. <laughs> but the beginning of that movie, after that whole thing with him, and then it goes to the limo, and he has two guys. The guy who puts his fingers together, and the Chinese guy who smokes. James Hong from Big Trouble in China. James Hong smokes. And Cash and Tango. Tango and Cash. These guys keep stealing my drugs. It's like the worst thing ever, man. It's amazing. <laughs> It's just such a bizarre movie because they got this like really brilliant director, Mario Konchalowski, to direct it, and then fired him and replaced him with guy who did Runaway Train. Right, I so the, the Russian that's Konchalowski. Yeah. Oh, is, oh, he was replaced. He was replaced. Oh, okay. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was like a second unit guy. But there's like these like weird like the prison that they're in is like a crazy like Runaway Train expressionistic Russian prison. I hadn't thought about that. But it's like this, you know. Dumb action movie. That well, it's John Peters and Peter Goober. Yeah, and it's like the 
You know what I really noticed about it the last time I saw about it, other than the fact that it just breaks down and becomes like a monster trunk. It becomes like the <laughs> really? Tango and Cash stun spectacular from like Universal Studios. Yes. There was one for like ten minutes where it's just like just all second unit trucks crashing. But uh, was how utterly there's not there's a like a homophobic joke in every scene. <laughs> it's just like so screamingly closeted that movie it's really weird yeah there's so many references to each other's cocks in that movie it's and like yeah don't touch my ass there's <laughs> even a drop of soap in the shower scene and everything it's just like but like I think at every scene there's some yeah, reference to like and I really resent that movie and I think Stallone should apologize <laughs> because he says oh but Rambo's a pussy Rambo's a pussy the first like one of his first lines yeah how the fuck do you do that <laughs> I think he thought it was funny. Maybe he's trying to turn his image around. Whatever. Maybe that was like a good idea at the time. That's a horrible thing to do. <laughs> I agree, man. I know it's his guy and everything, but like, Rambo is pussy. Well, especially First Blood. But you were a big First Blood Part 2 fan, right? Huge. Okay, because I love I love that some, I saw that movie this summer. It came out five times. <laughs> and I recognize now that's ridiculous, but it's a brilliant movie. And it's not as good as the first one, but I love that Yeah, movie the first so one much. fucking, oh my God, I love that movie so much. But that second one, man, I've seen. I could just sit and recite every line, <laughs> every sound cue. I love that that movie, like the TriStar logo comes up, and then it's like, da da da! Boom! <laughs> it's just a giant explosion. It's the first thing in the movie, and you're like, alright. I remember we went to see the opening night, I was like, this is gonna be great! And it was. It just fucking delivers, man. Yeah, movies today don't really. It literally set it up starts like that. and an explosion happens. <laughs> And then, like, he goes, are you going to do this? And he's like, do we get to win this time? And then it goes black. And then Rambo comes up, and it's in flames. <laughs> I have to watch it when you leave now. I watch that movie probably two or three times a year. Nice. Wow, see, that's cool. Those are I'm always interested in those movies. You know, if I had seen that movie now, like, just guys, younger guys, and I say, like, I let them in, like, look at me sideways or whatever. But, like, you had to be 13 years old and seeing that in the theater the first night. And, you know, I don't agree with that movie's politics at all. <laughs> like, it couldn't be farther away from who I am. It's, and it's, and it's ridiculous. And yet, man, is it good. <laughs> and he, like, is behind the guy in the mud and all of a sudden his eyes open and he gets in, like... <laughs> For some reason, all those guys decide not to make a sound when he, when he hits all of them to warn the other guys. But then all of a sudden, he raises out of the water and he has no mud on him. You know, he washed <laughs> off, and that shot of him just standing in the rain with the crossbow and like Dolly. Oh man, I, I have to watch it after you leave. I love that. Um, let's see here. What have I? We've covered a lot of this stuff here. Um, what uh, if you could have lunch with any actor or director not living today? Oh, Brando. He's. Brando for sure. I mean, he's the most fascinating person as a, just an artist. The film artist, probably more than any actor or director. For me, I could just watch that guy, you know, read the phone book or sit and do nothing. He's just fascinating, and every interview is just fascinating. I mean, I I, I imagine he would be incredibly mercurial, but he is so funny and so interesting. You know, there may be better, have been better people that you spend time with, but like, I just would like to sit with him for an hour and just, not even pick his brain and just let him say whatever. I'm sure, <laughs> and I would just probably have a story. It's like everyone I know who's ever seen Christopher Walken somewhere or had the pleasure of working with him has some 
story. That's an amazing story, you know. <laughs> and just imagine what it would be like to sit with Brando for an hour. Yeah, I mean, it's a story that, like, for, for a lifetime right there. Yeah. No, uh, what, and that's, uh, did you see the TZN documentary about him? No, I gotta check it out. And he just, like, was into weird stuff, but, like, he, he invented, trying to invent things, and was into, like, <laughs> nature and stuff, and they have Ed Begley on there, and he called Ed Begley over. Eddie Bagels, that's what he called him. <laughs> and he had a plan to... He wanted to know if it was possible, because he knew that Ed Begley was into all like energy conservation all stuff, to fill his swimming pool with electric eels and power his house with <laughs> Just he thought of that. That's a great Hollywood legend right there. You know? That's fucking great. So, yeah, that's, that's who I would like, like want to hang out with. That's awesome. That's yeah. really good. Um, what about, uh, let's see here, jumping around, a favorite made-for-TV movie? Oh, I did think about this. Well, maybe it's not fair, but technically Don Siegel's Killers is, you know, was made for television. That's true. That's excellent. And so is Duel, which, Mm -hmm. you know, both those movies were released theatrically overseas. I think Killers was released theatrically here, too. Yeah, correct. Um, I know we both share fondness for Bad Ronald. Can't Mm -hmm. go wrong Mm -hmm. there. Absolutely not. David Green, actually, he's been, like, trying to... Really? I don't know if he's no. I don't know if he's made a move, but he had an, he gets crazy ideas like the Snow Pony one. But he's like, "What? That would be a great Broadway musical." <laughs> I have to agree. I almost hesitate to say somebody would probably jump on it and do it. But yeah, that's a good one. Hell yeah, man! That's a great idea. What about? Um, there's ones again, like ones that I remember from seeing, like probably around the same Endless Love time, like. The Girl Most Likely with Stalker Channing. Oh, I don't know that one. She's like the fat, ugly girl, and then she gets like good looking, comes back, and like. You know, gets revenge on everybody that treated her like shit. I'm all over that. And then another one called The Best Little Girl in the World. Oh, that one I know. With Jennifer Jason Lee as an anorexic. Yeah, and her dad's... Uh, Charles Durning. Charles Durning, yes. And I just remember this amazing scene where he's had enough, and he brings her into the kitchen, and he makes like a hundred peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> and he just shoves them in her mouth. He's like, Charles, come here! <laughs> it's just Charles Durning shoving peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in Jennifer Jason Lee's mouth. He's like, ah... I think that's on the. There's something on the video cover that because that came out on VHS at one point. Oh, did it? And I think, but I don't know if it's a peanut butter. But it looks like he's shoved something in her mouth, or she's spitting something out. Because you know that's that's a great enticement. Is like you want to see any movie with Charles Durning shoving food <laughs> in this young girl's mouth. I'm there. Me too. <laughs> well, he was movies. on an episode of NCIS like right before I did it, and Mark Harmon was telling me that. He's like a badass commando dude. He was in the first wave of guys at Normandy. Charles Durning. He was in hand-to-hand combat with bayonets on the beach. He's got scars all over his body. I I haven't seen too many shirtless scenes with him. I mean, that's maybe part of the reason. Yeah, he was in the first wave. Wow, that's intense. It's just like a few guys like slicing up German dudes with hand-to-hand combat. Wow. What else did you talk to Mark Harmon about? I just watched Summer School with my I son. I worked with him ago. twice. He's a great guy. Yeah. Really nice. I worked with him on Chicago Hope, and a couple of the actresses were, like, ganging up on me in a scene, and he, like, probably stepped up and went to bat for me. And then oh, nice. Years later, I did uh, NCIS, and uh, just the nicest guy, and really supportive and great to work with, and, you know, wants you to be good. And, and he even, like... Nobody ever does this, but like you know, he like got my phone number and like called me when after the episode of aired and just told me I did a good job, you know. Wow. So uh, that's really classy. Yeah, I feel like Mark. I mean, he does very well, and he's 
Yeah, that show is like one of the most successful shows on TV. It's been on forever. Yeah, he's one of those guys that I like. I just from his films, I like him enough that I'm like, I want to see him do well. It's like he could have almost been a George Clooney. It's just the movies weren't good enough. You know, like Clooney got a couple of good ones and wrote, worked with like Soderbergh and got that level up. And none of the Harmon movies really hit because he did several and none of them were that good. Summer School is good and. Presidio, I remember liking the Presidio. God, have you seen that since it came out, though? No, I haven't, but it was one that my family used to watch a lot. Because, like, no Peter Hyams movies. Oh, it's Hyams. Wait, Running Scared. Running Scared. No, I couldn't even get through that last time I watched it. Even Capricorn 1, which I like, I was like, I was struggling with. Yeah. God, isn't there one? I thought there was one. But I want to see, you said Busting is good. I'll check. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it's of that time. No, it's pretty amazing. Right down the line, you watch them, and they're just like, 2010 is just like. Not only is it bad, but you're like, the balls. Did he, like, remake... He did a sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. In which he explains it, what happened in that movie. <laughs> what? Wait, who directed Breaking Away? Peter Yates. Yates, okay. Yeah, there underrated. We go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Whatever reason I... Bullet, Forgive Breaking me. Away. Yeah, I know you're a big Bullet fan, too. Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh, fuck, yeah. Uh, so glad that finally came Rock. Out. So many great films, especially yeah. crime movies he made. And, yeah. Um, I, heard, I heard this one, Robbery, is really good. My brother got it. You can probably get it. It's a, I think it's, it's, a, re, it's a region two, yeah. it's a, or it's like an England uh, DVD. I had another a friend of mine recommend that too. I totally want to see it. And I, Mother Jackson Speed is good. I've, I love that movie. Yeah, I love that movie. And um, the Dresser. I still haven't seen that. I heard that's so, fantastic. Yeah, don't ever confuse Pewdiepie. I know, that was a terrible mistake. Time Cop I may have to edit breaking that away. Time <laughs> the Relic. The Relic. That's Bullet. <laughs> the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, stay Tuned. <laughs> With John Ritter. Oh, and, my God. And Pam Dauber. Mark, oh. Mrs. Mark Harmon. Oh wow! I forgot. Bringing about it back, man. Nice, nicely done. Everything comes full circle. Nicely done. Um, let's see here. We were talking about movie posters. Yeah. And and I know you said that your drivey said, which is yeah, awesome. I like like the simple like sixties and I mean obviously like sixties and seventies movies the best, but I like this like simple like sort of art design and like you said, I rock the original folded style. I don't like the reprints, but I, you know, I've got a big stack of them here that I've just collected over the years. We used to have hundreds of them that we got either from the video store that in our neighborhood or the movie theater that we worked at for years, but what's this one? California Split. That's oh, it's a great poster. Great poster. I showed you the one-eyed jacks that I have here. I've got... I think I've got a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff because there's like Clint Eastwood. I showed you that I had a, a, an autographed Nutty Professor poster. I'm so jealous. And this ill-gotten original <laughs> Thunderball. There's no ill-gotten one sheet no that I got. A guy gave me for five bucks. That's Pritzy's honor. See, now these are a bunch that I got like in the '80s when I was working at the theater and stuff. So we got like what do we got? King Pritzy, Comedy. Pritzy's I saw honor. Oh, King Comedy is my favorite movie. I think. Yeah. it's yours too, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's one of the top five. This was my brother's friends with John Borman, so this was a hope and Friends with John Borman? Yeah, he did a tribute to him years ago at the Chicago Film Festival, and he had... Wow. This was one I had up as a teenager in my room. It's all sun-faded. It's uh, uh, Stranger Than Paradise. Awesome. That's great. Um, this is... You'll like this one. I'm sorry for our... 
people, you know, you can't see this on the radio, but this is a Spanish way, way outpost. Right? Oh, fuck. And it's Jerry Lewis. Don't tear it, don't tear it. But the movie is called Un Loco en Orbita. <laughs> that is awesome. The crazy one in space. Dude. In orbit. You gotta get that one framed, too. I know. It's you gotta get Jerry to sign that one. Yeah, that one I didn't bring. I, I took that one and I gave my buddy Mike uh, the... Uh, he had a, I had a ladies man and I gave that one to him that's a great movie I love that movie yeah, it is great this is a Steve Martin autographed jerk poster excellent this was the one I had on my wall in college because I had this really powerful experience because somebody gave me a joint that was laced with PCP and I watched Easy Rider <laughs> in order to calm down so I had this giant French Easy Rider poster that Ooh. I had on my wall for a long time oh that's cool Dennis Hopper has just left that. us yeah. Electric Glide in Blue. Yeah. I like these 70s. You, you were looking at the Race with the Devil one earlier. You said you had that one. This is like that the 70s, like, sweet. with all that different action and stuff. This movie is not like this at all, but I love the poster that it's like all the action and tits that are in the movie. <laughs> but, uh, oh, I've never seen that, that Electric Glide. That's really uh, cool. That's nice, right? Yeah. And this is my Pope of Greenwich Village poster that I talked about that I got. I think some theater owner gave it to me. It's still got all the sticky stuff on it in 1984 because. That Mickey Rourke in that particularly. Ooh, I'm seeing Cisco it. Pike. Yeah, that's great. That's a great movie. Prime Cut. Love it. Love it, Michael Ritchie. Ritchie yep. This is an ugly American poster. It's a brand new movie that I actually haven't seen. But I've never seen that either. But somebody like wrote like right on the poster. You know, oh, I Sunday, it. Monday, Tuesday, Monday. Oh, it kills me when that happens, dude. Because otherwise, it's pretty nice. An ugly American. I got to check that out. Yeah, I don't know if it's that's good or not. It's produced and directed by George Anglin, who was. Brando's longtime friend, and he's married to Cloris Leachman for many years. He's a pretty prominent documentary. Bronco Billy. Oh, cool. What is this one? The Sheltering, Sheltering Sky. Sky. This one, Sheltering Sky and Hutsucker Proxy, these come from, I don't know why I still have them, but they were just from the theater I worked at, and then I grabbed them. Cool. 48 Hours. Oh, cool. Uh, Race with the Devil. Which is awesome. Yep. And then, let's see. What's in this one? Maybe this is like the... Holy grail. <laughs> uh, so HUD still. That's cool. This one? Oh, the Ballad of the Cable Hog, which is a great Oh, nice. That is a, that's maybe, that could be, sometimes I say that's my favorite. That I when I, the one time I went to Joe Dante's house, he asked us what movie we wanted to see, and I had already seen it projected, but Robards had just passed away, and he's like, well, let's watch it, and we watched it again. His, uh, he's got like his pool room, his, like, his, his projection room. So he yeah, had 16 or what? No, 35 for him. great. Wow. Wait, what did you, you go to his house for? Was it with he's, your brother? It was when my brother was out here. We yeah. visited him. Yeah, oh, and we just cool. hung out. He bought us pizza and like... Watch Ballad of Cable Hill. We watched that. Yeah, he's got like a, you know gremlins and stuff. And, and you know what he has in his projection room is he has the, he has the rosebud sled. Wow. Which Spielberg claims to have and yeah. sold it, like bought from an auction. But Joe claims his is the one, like, there was a bunch made, obviously, but Joe claims his is the original one because it was in the Paramount props uh, department and they were emptying it out when he was making Explorers and they just asked him if he wanted it. <laughs> I like that story way better. Yeah, like... Uh, you know, my brother, you know, where he works, like, they have the original camera negative of Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz up there, only because somebody was just throwing it out in a garbage can. Like, before people knew what this stuff was, you know, before film preservation movement. Well, and how many movies have we lost because of that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, which was, like, arguably one of the most famous, awarded, 
and financially successful giant movies of all time was rotting on a shelf before somebody restored it, you know, <sighs> 15 years ago. So hopefully we're past that now, but there are things that are lost. And, oh, this is a nice one. That, is that Cannonball yeah, Run? No, this is Cannonball Run. Nice. That is nice. It's a good one. Yeah. Dom DeLuise. So, yeah, I, you know, I don't collect these as much as I used to, but uh, I do have a fondness for them. And I still look for, like, you know, occasionally I'll look for a... Uh, if I got some money and I want to frame one. I've got a freebie in the bean half sheet that I'm going to get. Oh. That's the next one I'm going to get framed. It's in my room, but I... Yes. I, I, you know, I look for, like, a nice... Uh, a nice... Uh, Zabriskie point or something like that, because those are rare. You know, the movie that I wanted to talk about, I think you've seen it. They've shown it. I've seen it twice. But they only think there's one print of it, because I've seen it on both coasts, is uh, The Gravy Train, that the Dion Brothers, yeah. the Jack Starrett's movie. I love that movie. Which will probably never come out on DVD, because people don't even know about it. And as far as I know, there's that only that one print of it. And it's not. it doesn't have a following, just because... It does, from people... Every time I see it, it's packed, and the audience is just like go nuts for it. It's a great movie, but it, play, I, it doesn't I start have with big cr- stars in it, and it's not. Wait, did you see it at the Arrow? Saw so at the Arrow. Oh, I might. Well, they might probably show it multiple times there, no, but I was, was there that, for was one there, time. They had that. In was was um, Race with the Devil? Who? Uh, that wasn't it. Because was um, what's his name? Was Freddie Forrest there? Yeah, I might have been at that one. Yeah, and that played so well with the crowd. I was. I was oh yeah, and I saw it then on the East Coast, and it was the same thing. It's a great movie, and and it's just. I know it doesn't have big stars. It's Stacey Keach and Frederick Forrest. And was it Robert Romanus, I think? Yeah. yeah. And it's just a weird movie, but it's just like really good. So that's kind of a movie that I wish would come out on TV. Yeah. I so do, too. I mean, it's, at least it's been playing on TV a little bit. Has it? I, well, not recently. I, I, got a, I had a tape off TV from probably about, would be seven or eight years ago, Encore or Action or oh, something. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's good. So at least... I feel like it's still around. I know Tarantino's a big fan of it, and he played it on his deal. I mean, it's so, like, clearly, like, he's watched that movie over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and also just, like, movies like the Blues Brothers and stuff like that, those sort of, like, serious, like, demolition comedies. You know? <laughs> it's very, very, uh, I know, like, important people have seen it and are affected by it, you know, because it's, there's a lot of Tarantino-esque stuff in that. Yeah. I, I, Especially it's mixed mix of, like, broad humor and then like really like serious kind of dark to violent stuff yeah yeah it's a great fucking good movie. one um <clears throat> well we kind of been over the film reference I mean we're both big Danny Perry fans yeah but do you have any other favorite film reference books this is the last question I think I have oh um or, or anything per- pertaining to film you know a bio a biography or, or whatever yeah there was one that I was just thinking about and I don't know why I really I love biographies and I, I you know Sean Levy's Jerry Lewis book King of Comedy is like one of the best books ever it's just like it helps you really understand and appreciate him for all of his faults and flaws have you read The Total Filmmaker or whatever oh yeah he, gave, he said I, I uh, you know if you write me a letter I'll send you a copy of it and he did he was good to his word oh wow oh that's right there. you have it? I have it yeah yeah it's a great book. It's hard to find, but he sent it from his office with a little note in oh, it. Oh, wow. Well, it's in there somewhere. Hope I didn't lose it. But. Yeah, that's a great one, actually. I, I've taken a lot of notes from that. And Walter Murch's books, In the Blink of an Eye and uh, The Conversations, which just, you know, he's primarily an editor and a sound guy, but 
talking about the art of film, like those are very, um, in terms of making movies, I think those are really good. And Sidney Lomad's book. Yeah, yeah, making movies is great. Yeah, and then um, I really like those, like, you know, Altman, Altman, Scorsese, and Scorsese, like that whole series, those are really good. And the one, the last one that I would say is, and I said, the merch books and the, oh, the uh, Cameron Crowe, the conversations with Billy Wilder. Wilder. I still don't have that book, which is insane because I love Wilder and I should have it. Yeah. That's just like, you know, if those other ones tell you about the craft and stuff, that's just somebody who's just like the best just enveloping you in his love for all the stuff that he did. He just must have just such a warm, large spirit to him. And, and um, I love Cameron Crowe's movies too, but I, I I love Billy Wilder. And that, that book's just like, that kind of like expresses the kind of when it's right, which is rare, like why I do this, why I love movies so much, you know. Um, somebody like him just loved doing it and why. And coming up with gags and you know working with actors and living his life you know that's a really great book I would recommend it cool yeah well I should I should uh, shut up and so it was just like three hours now no that's not bad we're at uh, 142 huh. it's not too bad but I full length movie yeah yeah commentary but um thank you Pat so much thank you. I'll cut this short thank now you, but uh, you, you've covered all my questions and really well so I really appreciate you taking the time my pleasure um, so uh, I will let you know when this one posts it'll be pretty soon i think so thanks yeah thank you thanks for listening you can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com you can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207 and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com